Hi there, listeners. Welcome back to Womance's public access read-along of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. I am your even chapter reader, Isabeau. I'm your odd chapter reader, Morgan. This week is an even chapter. I have no idea what chapter it is because I am on chapter 9, volume 2. It's chapter 24. Chapter 24, for those of you in other texts. You're just powering straight through. Powering straight through, consuming these like one might consume jello shots on the 4th of July at 2 p.m. in the afternoon at some barbecue that you didn't want to go to but were forced into because you're a good person and you're not good. I'm picturing someone just sitting there eating jello shots, and I don't think I've ever seen that, and it also sounds awful. At a place of previous employment for me, we used to get the day off and have a big 4th of July party, and you had to go essentially like the strippers in magic mike mm-hmm. and we ate jello shots at 12 p.m in the afternoon and our boss made meats of various kinds and grilled asparagus it's very weird it's a very weird way to spend some time asparagus like the one vegetable people think to grill it's true it's like you can grill the others they're just as good <laughs> yeah we don't have to lean on asparagus for our iron fiber whatever we did need fiber that day though we don't have to put that much pressure on asparagus anyway what happened in chapter 21 morgan chapter 23 i believe you mean i do i had 23 apologies chapter 23 wow rochester and jane profess love for each other he tries to be like well i guess you got to go to ireland now because i'm marrying blanche i just made a come at me face and she was like no because i feel strongly for you and it's unfair everything's unfair and he's like guess what we're getting married And after she accepts his proposal, after a great deal of convincing, he embraces her and starts whispering some stuff about how God will forgive him because Jane needs him so much. And then a storm starts, a thunderstorm, and Jane retreats to the house. Miss Fairfax sees them smooching and Jane provides no context and goes to bed and is just like full of love, feeling all feather light and fancy free. And then discovers the next morning the tree under which they sat had been ripped asunder by a lightning strike. And unto that, we have chapter 24. As I rose and dressed, I thought over what had happened and wondered if it were a dream. I could not be certain of the reality till I had seen Mr. Rochester again and heard him renew his words of love and promise. While arranging my hair, I looked at my face in the glass and felt it was no longer plain. There was hope in its aspect and life in its color. My eyes seemed as if they had beheld the font of fruition and borrowed beams from the lustrous ripple. I had often been unwilling to look at my master because I feared he could not be pleased at my look. But I was sure I might lift my face to his now and not cool his affection by its expression. I took a plain but clean and light summer dress from my drawer and put it on. It seemed no attire had ever so well become me because none had I ever worn in so blissful a mood. It's a little bit like Anne Elliot at the end of uh, Persuasion. I'm pretty because I'm in love. I was not surprised when I ran down into the hall to see that a brilliant June morning had succeeded to the tempest of the night, and to feel through the open glass door the breathing of a fresh and fragrant breeze. Nature must be gladsome when I was so happy. A beggar woman and her little boy, pale, ragged objects both, were coming up the walk. I ran down and gave them all the money I happened to have in my purse. Some three or four shillings, good or bad, they must partake of my jubilee. (laughs) Okay, Jane. The rooks 
cod and blitherbirds sang, but nothing was so merry or so musical as my own rejoicing heart. Mrs. Fairfax surprised me by looking out the window with a sad countenance and saying gravely, Miss Eyre, will you come to breakfast? During the meal, she was quiet and cool, but I could not undeceive her then. I must wait for my master to give explanations, and so must she. I ate what I could, and then I hastened upstairs. I met Adele leaving the schoolroom. Where are you going? It is time for lessons. Mr. Rochester has sent me away to the nursery. Where is he? In there, pointing to the apartment she had left, I went in and there he stood. Come and bid me good morning, said he. I gladly advanced, and it was not merely a cold word now or even a shake of the hand that I received, but an embrace and a kiss. It seemed natural, it seemed genial to be so well-loved, so caressed by him. Jane, you look blooming and smiling and pretty, said he. Truly pretty this morning. Is this my pale little elf? Is this my mustard seed? This little sunny-faced girl with her dimpled cheek and rosy lips? The satin-smooth hazel hair and the radiant hazel eyes? I had green eyes, reader, but you must excuse the mistake. For him, they were new-dyed, I suppose. It is Jane Eyre, sir. Soon to be Jane Rochester, he added. In four weeks, Janet, not a day more. Do you hear that? I did, and I could not quite comprehend it. It made me giddy. The feeling the announcement sent through me was something stronger than was consistent with joy. Something that smote and stunned. It was, I think, almost fear. You blushed, and now you're white, Jane. What is that for? Because you gave me a new name, Jane Rochester. It seems so strange. Yes. Mrs. Rochester, said he. Young Mrs. Rochester. Fairfax Rochester's girl bride. Boy, red flags are us. (laughs) Yeah, not great. It can never be, sir. It does not sound likely. Human beings never enjoy complete happiness in this world. I was not born for a different destiny to the rest of my species to imagine such a lot befalling me as a fairy tale, a daydream, which I can and will realize. I shall begin today. This morning, I wrote to my banker in London to send me certain jewels he has in his keeping. Heirlooms for the ladies of Thornfield. In a day or two, I hope to pour them into your lap. For every privilege, every attention shall be yours. That I would accord a peer's daughter if about to marry her. Oh, sir. Never mind jewels. I don't like to hear them spoken of. Jewels for Jane Eyre sounds unnatural and strange. I would rather not have them. I will myself put the diamond chain round your neck and the circlet on your forehead, which it will become, for nature at least has stamped her patent nobility on this brow, Jane. I will clasp the bracelets on these fine wrists and load these fairy-like fingers with rings. No, no, sir. Think of other subjects and speak of other things. And in another strain, don't address me as if I were a beauty. I am your plain Quakerish governess. You are a beauty in my eyes, and a beauty just after the desire of my heart. Delicate and aerial. Puny and insignificant, you mean. You are dreaming, sir, or you are sneering. For God's sake, don't be ironical. I will make the world acknowledge you a beauty too, he went on, which I really became uneasy at the strain he had adopted, because I felt he was either deluding himself or trying to delude me. I will attire my Jane in satin and lace, and she will have roses in her hair, and I will cover the head I love best with a priceless veil. And then you won't know me, sir, and I shall not be your Jane Eyre any longer, but an ape in a harlequin's jacket, a jay in borrowed plumes. I would as soon see you, Mr. Rochester, tricked out in stage trappings as myself clad in a court lady's robe. I don't call you handsome, sir, though I love you most dearly, far too dearly to flatter you. 
Don't flatter me. He pursued his theme, however, without noticing my deprecation. This very day, I shall take you in the carriage to Milcut, and you must choose some dresses for yourself. I told you we shall be married in four weeks. The wedding is to take place quietly in the church down below yonder, and then I shall waft you away at once to town. After a brief stay there, I shall bear my treasure to regions near the sun, French vineyards and Italian plains, and she shall see whatever is famous in old story and in modern record, and she shall taste, too, of the life of cities, and she shall learn to value herself by just comparison with others. Shall I travel? And with you, sir. You shall sojourn to Paris, Rome, and Naples, at Florence, Venice, and Vienna. All the ground I have wandered over shall be retrodden by you. Wherever I stamped my hoof, your sylph's foot shall step also. Ten years since I flew through Europe, half mad with disgust, hate, and rage as my companions. Now I shall revisit it, healed and cleansed, the very angel as my comforter. I laughed at him as he said this. I am not an angel, I asserted, and I will not be one till I die. I will be myself, Mr. Rochester. You must neither expect nor exact anything celestial of me, for you will not get it any more than I shall get it of you, which I do not at all anticipate. What do you anticipate of me? For a little while, you will perhaps be as you are now. For a little while, and then you will turn cool, and then you will be capricious, and then you will be stern, and I shall have much ado to please you. But when you get well used to me, you'll perhaps like me again. Like me, I say, not love me. I suppose your love will effervesce in six months or less. I have observed in books written by men that period assigned as the farthest to which a husband's adder extends. Yet, after all, as a friend and companion, I hope never to become quite distasteful to my dear master. Distasteful? And like you again? I think I shall like you again and yet again. And I will make you confess I do not only like but love you with truth, fervor, and constancy. Are you not capricious, sir? To women who please me only by their faces, I am the very devil when I find out they have neither souls nor hearts. When they open to me a perspective of flatness, triviality, and perhaps imbecility, coarseness, and ill temper. But to the clear eye and eloquent tongue, to the soul made of fire and the character that bends but does not break, at once supple and stable, tractable and constant, I am ever tender, ever true. Had you ever experience of such a character, sir? Did you ever love such a one? I love it now. But before me, if I indeed in any respect come up to that difficult standard. I never met your likeness, Jane. You please me and you master me. You seem to submit. And I like the sense of pliancy you impart. And while I am winning the soft silken skein round my finger, sends a thrill up my arm to my heart. I am influenced conquered, and the influence is sweeter than I can express, and the conquest I undergo has a witchery beyond any triumph I can win. Why do you smile, Jane? What does that inexplicable, that uncanny turn of countenance mean? I was thinking, sir, you'll excuse the idea, it was involuntary, I was thinking of Hercules and Samson with their charmers. You were, you little elfish. Hush, sir. You don't talk very wisely just now, any more than those gentlemen acted very wisely. However, had they been married, they would no doubt by their severity as husbands have made up for their softness as suitors. And so will you, I fear. I wonder how you will answer me a year hence, should I ask a favor it does not suit your convenience or pleasure to grant. Ask me something now, Janet, the least thing. I desire to be entreated. Indeed, I will, sir. 
I will have my petition all ready. Speak! But if you look up and smile with that countenance, I shall swear concession before I know to what, and that will make a fool of me. Not at all, sir. I ask only this. Don't send for the jewels, and don't crown me with roses. You might as well put a border of gold lace around that plain pocket handkerchief you have there. Might as well gild refined gold? I know it. Your request is granted, then, for the time. I will remand the order I dispatched to my banker, but you have not yet asked for anything. You have prayed a gift to be withdrawn. Try again. Well then, sir, have the goodness to gratify my curiosity which is much piqued on one point. He looked disturbed. What? What? He said hastily. Curiosity is a dangerous petitioner. As well, I have not taken a vow to accord every request. But there can be no danger in complying with this, sir. Utter it, Jane. But I wish that instead of a mere inquiry into perhaps a secret, it was a wish for half my estate. Now, King Asurius, what do I want with half your estate? Do you think I am a nasty term? Jew usurer? seeking good investment in land. I would much rather have all your confidence. You will not exclude me from your confidence if you admit me to your heart. You're welcome to all my confidence that is worth having, Jane, but for God's sake, don't desire a useless burden. Don't long for poison. Don't turn a downright Eve on my hands. Why not, sir? You've just been telling me how much you like to be conquered, how pleasant over-persuasion is to you. Don't you think I had better take advantage of the confession and begin and coax and entreat, even cry and be sulky if necessary, for the sake of a mere essay of my power? I dare you to any such experiment. Encroach, presume, and the game is up. Is it, sir? You soon give in. How stern you look now. Your eyebrows have become as thick as my finger, and your forehead resembles what, in some very astonishing poetry I once saw styled, a blue piled thunder loft. That will be your married look, sir, I suppose. If that will be your married look, I as a Christian will soon give up the notion of consorting with a mere sprite or salamander. But what had you to ask, thing? Out with it. There, you are less than civil now, and I like rudeness a great deal better than flattery. I had rather be a thing than an angel. This is what I have to ask. Why did you make such pains to make me believe you wish to marry Miss Ingram? Is that all? Thank God it is no worse. And now he unknit his black brows, looked down, smiling at me, and stroked my hair as if well pleased at seeing a danger averted. I think I may confess, he continued, even although I should make you a little indignant, Jane. I have seen what a fire spirit you can be when you are indignant. You glowed in the cool moonlight last night when you mutinied against fate and claimed your rank as my equal, Janet, by the by. It was you who made me the offer. Of course I did, but to the point if you please. Miss Ingram. Well, I feigned courtship of Miss Ingram because I wished to render you as madly in love with me as I was with you, and I knew jealousy would be the best ally I could call in for the furtherance of that end. Excellent! Now you are small, not one whit bigger than the end of my little finger. It was a burning shame and a scandalous disgrace to act in that way. Did you think nothing of Miss Ingram's feelings, sir? Oh, it's fine to call him out now that you know. <laughs> Could have said it at any time, Jane. <laughs>
Could have prevented her from getting lied to by Mr. Rochester in drag about his money. Yeah, absolutely. Her feelings are concentrated in one pride. And that needs humbling. Were you jealous, Jane? Never mind. Mr. Rochester, it is in no way interesting to you to know that. Answer me truly once more. Do you think Miss Ingram will not suffer from your dishonest coquetry? Won't she feel forsaken and deserted? Impossible! When I told you how she, on the contrary, deserted me, the idea of my insolvency cooled or rather extinguished her flame in a moment. I have a curious designing mind, Mr. Rochester. I'm afraid your principles on some points are eccentric. My principles were never trained, Jane. They may have grown a little awry for want of attention. Once again, seriously, may I enjoy the great good that has been vouchsafed to me without fearing that anyone else is suffering the bitter pain I myself felt a while ago? That you may, my good little girl. There is not another being in the world has the same pure love for me as yourself. For I lay that pleasant unction to my soul, Jane, a belief in your affection. I turned my lips to the hand that lay on my shoulder. I loved him very much, more than I could trust myself to say, more than words had power to express. Ask something more, he said presently. It is my light to be entreated and to yield. I was again ready with my request. Communicate your intentions to Mrs. Fairfax, sir. She saw me with you last night in the hall, and she was shocked. Give her some explanation before I see her again. It pains me to be misjudged by so good a woman. Go to your room and put on your bonnet, he replied. I mean you to accompany to Millcut this morning, and while you prepare for the drive, I will enlighten the old lady's understanding. Did she think, Janet, you had given the world for love and considered it well lost? I believe she thought I had forgotten my station and yours, sir. Station, station. Your station is in my heart and on the necks of those who would insult you now or hereafter. Go. I was soon dressed, and when I heard Mr. Rochester quit Mrs. Fairfax's parlor, I hurried down to it. The old lady had been reading her morning portion of scripture, the lesson for the day. Her Bible lay open before her, and her spectacles were upon it. Her occupation, suspended by Mr. Rochester's announcement, seemed now forgotten. Her eyes fixed on the blank wall opposite expressed the surprise of a quiet mind, stirred by unwanted tidings. Seeing me, she roused herself. She made a sort of effort to smile and framed a few words of congratulation, but the smile expired and the sentence was abandoned, unfinished. She put up her spectacles, shut the Bible, and pushed her chair back from the table. I feel so astonished, she began. I hardly know what to say to you, Miss Eyre. I have surely not been dreaming, have I? Sometimes I fall asleep when I am sitting alone and fancy things that have never happened. It has seemed to me more than once when I have been in a doze that my dear husband, who died fifteen years since, has come in and sat down beside me and that I have even heard him call me by name, Alice, as he used to. Now, can you tell me whether it is actually true that Mr. Rochester has asked you to marry him? Don't laugh at me, but I really thought he came in here five minutes ago and said that in a month you would be his wife. He said the same thing to me, I replied. He has. Do you believe him? Have you accepted him? Yes. She looked at me bewildered. Could never have thought it. He's a proud man. All of Rochester's were proud, and his father at least liked money. He too has always been called careful. He means to marry you. He tells me so. She surveyed my whole person. In her eyes I read that they had there found no charm powerful enough to solve the enigma. It passes me, she continued, but no doubt it is true since you say so. How it will answer I cannot tell. I really don't know. Quality of position and fortune is often advisable in such cases. And there are twenty years of difference in your ages. You might almost be your father. 
No, indeed, Mrs. Fairfax, exclaimed I, nettled. There's nothing like my father. No one who saw us together would suppose it for an instant. Mr. Rochester looks as young and is as young as some men at five and twenty. The parade of red flags continues. (laughs) Is it really for love he is going to marry you, she asked. I was so hurt by her coldness and skepticism that the tears rose to my eyes. I'm sorry to grieve you, pursued the widow, but you are so young and so little acquainted with men. Yeah, like your dad. How do you know he's not like your dad? Your dad died when you were young. You don't know. You have no idea. Also, he literally could be your dad. That's how this works. Yeah, yeah. But you are so young and so little acquainted with men. I wish to put you on your guard. It is an old saying that all is not gold that glitters. And in this case, I do fear there will be something found to be different to what either you or I expect. Why? Am I a monster? I said. Is it impossible that Mr. Rochester should have a sincere affection for me? No. You are very well, and much improved of late. And Mr. Rochester, I dare say, is fond of you. I have always noticed that you were a sort of pet of his. Red flag, red flag, red flag. There are times when, for your sake, I have been a little uneasy at his marked preference and have wished to put you on your guard, but I did not like to suggest even the possibility of wrong. I knew such an idea would shock, perhaps offend you, and you were so discreet and so thoroughly modest and sensible, and I hoped you might be trusted to protect yourself. Last night, I cannot tell you what I suffered when I saw all over the house and could find you nowhere, nor the master either, and then at 12 o'clock, you came in with him. Well, never mind that now, I interrupted impatiently. It is enough that it was all right. I hope all will be right in the end, she said. But believe me, you cannot be too careful. Try and keep Mr. Rochester at a distance. Distrust yourself as well as him. Gentlemen in a station are not accustomed to marry their governesses. I was growing truly irritated. Happily, Adele ran in. Let me go. Let me go to Milka too, she cried. Mr. Rochester won't. There is so much room in the new carriage. Beg him to let me go, mademoiselle. That I will, Adele. I hastened away with her, glad to quit my gloomy monitress. The carriage was ready. They were bringing it round to the front, and my master was pacing the pavement, Pilot following him backwards and forwards. Adele may accompany us, may she not, sir? I told her no. I'll have no brats. I'll have only you. Do let her go, Mr. Rochester, if you please. It would be better. Not it. She will be a restraint. He was quite preemptory, both in look and voice. The chill of Mrs. Fairfax's warning and the damp of her doubts were upon me. Something of unsubstantiality and uncertainty had beset my hopes. I half lost the sense of power over him. I was about mechanically to obey him without further remonstrance, but as he helped me into the carriage, he looked at my face. What is the matter? He asked. The sunshine is gone. She really wished the Baron to go. Let annoy you if she's left behind. I'd far rather she went, sir. Then off for your bonnet and back like a flash of lightning, cried he to Adele. She obeyed him with that speed she might. After all, a single morning's interruption will not matter much, said he, when I mean shortly to claim you, your thoughts, conversation, and company for life. Adele, when lifted in, commenced kissing me by way of expressing her gratitude for my intercession. She was instantly stowed away into a corner on the other side of him. She then peeped round to where I sat, so stern a neighbor was too restrictive. To him in his present fractious mood, she dared whisper no observations, nor ask of him any information. Let her come to me, I entreated. She will perhaps trouble you, sir. There's plenty of room on this side. He handed her over as if she had been a lapdog. I'll send her to school yet, he said. But now he was smiling.
smiling. Adele heard him and asked if she was to go to school. Sans mademoiselle? Yes, he replied. Absolutely sans mademoiselle. For I am to take mademoiselle to the moon, and there I shall seek a cave in one of the white valleys among the volcano tops. Mademoiselle shall live with me there, and only me. She will have nothing to eat. You will starve her, observed Adele. Red flags. <laughs> Adele is now waving a red flag. Out of the mouths of babes. Probably lace trimmed, a frothy red flag. I shall gather manna for her morning and night. The plains and hillsides of the moon are bleached with manna, Adele. She will want to warm herself. What will she do for a fire? These are all great questions, Adele. I think what you're pointing out, Adele, is not the literal lack of warmth on the moon, but the fact that Mr. Rochester is very in love with this beautiful (laughs) metaphor and not so interested in the actual feelings of the people involved. Good job. And repercussions of the choices he's making to take Jane to the moon. Seems like he's not really (laughs) thinking things through, is he, Adele? Thank goodness you're here in the big carriage to ask these important moon-based questions. Wonderful. She'll want to warm herself. What will she do for a fire? Fire rises out of the lunar mountains. When she is cold, I'll carry her up a peak and lay her down at the edge of a crater. Oh, Kelly Sarah mal peu confortable. Oh, she'll be uncomfortable there. And her clothes will wear out. How can she get new ones? Mr. Rochester professed to be puzzled. Hem, said he. What would you do, Adele? Cudgel your brains for an expedient. How would a white or pink cloud answer for a gown, do you think? And one could cut a pretty enough scarf out of a rainbow. She is far better as she is, concluded Adele, after musing some time. Besides, she would get tired of living with only you and the moon. If I were Mademoiselle, I would never consent to go with you. She has consented. She has pledged her word. Well, has she? Do you think she... She really knows the full context of the moon. Has she been there? Does she know? Is she making an informed, consensual decision to go to the moon? Um, or are you just kind of making up the moon as you go along? Because the moon itself kind of exists out of all knowledge. Like, no one has traipsed this moon before and you think of yourself as like inventing the moon and so you can make the moon work for you but you're not really thinking about how the moon's gonna work for jane but you can't get her there there is no road to the moon it is all air and neither you nor she can fly neither you nor she can fly adele speaking truth to power adele Look at that field. Ugh. We are now outside Thornfield Gates and bowling lightly along the smooth road to Millcut, where the dust was well laid by the thunderstorm, and where the low hedges and lofty timber trees on each side glistened green and rain freshed. In that field, Dell, I was walking late one evening about a fortnight since, the evening of the day you helped me make hay in the orchard meadows, and as I was tired with raking swaths, I sat down to rest me on a stile, and there I took out a little book and a pencil and began to write about a misfortune that befell me long ago, and I wish I had for happy days to come. I was writing away very fast, though daylight was fading from the leaf, when something came up the path and stopped two yards off me. I looked at it. It was a little thing with a veil of gossamer on its head. It beckoned it to come over near me, stood soon at my knee. I never spoke to it, and it never spoke to me in words, but I read its eyes, and it read mine, and our speechless colloquy was to this effect. It was a fairy, come from Elfland, it said, and its errand was to make me happy. I must go with it 
out of the common world to a lonely place, such as the moon, for instance, and it nodded its head toward her horn rising over the hay hill. It told me of the alabaster cave and silver veil where we might live. I said I should like to go, but reminded it, as you did me, that I had no wings to fly. Oh, returned the fairy, that does not signify. Here is a talisman that will remove all difficulties. She held out a pretty gold ring. Put it, she said, on the fourth finger of my left hand, and I am yours and you are mine. She'll leave earth and make our own heaven yonder. She nodded again at the moon. Ringadell is in my breeches pocket under the disguise of a sovereign, but I mean soon to change it into a ring again. But what has Mademoiselle to do with it? I don't care for the fairy. You said it was Mademoiselle you would take to the moon. Mademoiselle is a fairy, he said, whispering mysteriously. Whereupon I told her not to mind his bandinage, and she, on her part, evinced a fund of genuine French skepticism, denominating Mr. Rochester as un frais monteur, and assuring him that she had no account whatever of his conte de fille, and that de reste il n'y a... I can't do it. Il n'y avait pas de frais, et quand même il y en avait... Do you want to know what that means? Do you have a translation? I don't. Uh, so, I told her not to mind his badinage, and she, on her part, evinced a fund of genuine French skepticism, denominating Mr. Rochester a real liar, and assuring him that she made no count whatever of his fairy tales, and that, furthermore, there were no fairies, and even if there were some, he would not be a part of a fairy tale, is what I think she's saying. She was sure they would never appear to him, nor ever give him rings, or offer to live with him in the moon. The hour spent at Milcote was a somewhat harassing one to me. Mr. Rochester obliged me to go to a certain silk warehouse there was ordered to choose half a dozen dresses. I hated the business. I begged leave to defer it. No, it should be gone through with now. By dint of entreaties expressed in energetic whispers, I reduced the half dozen to two. These, however, he vowed he would select himself. With anxiety, I watched as I rove over gay stores. He fixed on a rich silk with the most brilliant amethyst dye a superb pink satin. I told him in a new series of whispers that he might as well buy me a gold gown and a silver bonnet at once. I'd certainly never venture to wear his choice. With infinite difficulty, for he was stubborn as a stone, I persuaded him to make an exchange in favor of a silver black satin and pearl gray silk. Might pass for the present, he said, but he would yet see me glittering like a partree. Glad as I was to get him out of the silk warehouse and then out of the jeweler shop, the more he bought me, the more my cheek burned with a sense of annoyance and degradation. As we re-entered the carriage and I sat back feverish and fagged, I remembered what in the hurry of events dark and bright I had wholly forgotten. The letter of my uncle John Eyre to Mrs. Reed, his intention to adopt me and make me his legatee. It would indeed be a relief, I thought, if I had ever so small an independency. Never can bear being dressed like a doll by Mr. Rochester sitting like a second Danae, with a golden shower falling daily around me. I will write to Madeira the moment I get home and tell my uncle John I am going to be married and to whom. If I had but a prospect of one day bringing Mr. Rochester an ascension of fortune, I could better endure to be kept by him now. And somewhat relieved by this idea, which I failed not to execute that day, I ventured once more to meet my master's and lover's eye, which was pertinaciously sought mine, though I averted both face and gaze. He smiled, and I thought his smile was such as a sultan might, in a blissful and fond moment, bestow on a slave his gold and gems had enriched. I crushed his hand, which was ever hunting mine, vigorously, and thrust it back to him, red with the 
passionate pressure. You need not look in that way, I said. If you do, I'll wear nothing but my old Lowood frocks to the end of the chapter. I'll be married in the lilac gingham. You may make a dressing gown for yourself out of the pearl gray silk and an infinite series of waistcoats out of the black satin. He chuckled. He rubbed his hands. Oh, it is rich to see and hear her, he exclaimed. Is she original? Is she pequant? I would not exchange this one little English girl for the Grand Turk's whole seraglio, gazelle eyes, or reforms and all. The Eastern illusion bit me again. I'll not stand you an inch in the stead of a seraglio, I said. So don't consider me an equivalent for one. If you have a fancy for anything in that line, away with you, sir, to the bazaars of Stamboul without delay, and lay out in the extensive slave purchases some that spare cash you seem at a loss to spend satisfactorily here. This is reminding me this racist passage of the guy who went on the BBC and said no one has done more for people of color than the royal family. That was a thing that somebody said in 2021. Can you imagine having that much confidence in your nation? No, not only that, but in like the esoteric running of the, you know, functionary head of state that has no real power, but like continues to take money out of the coffers of that state. That's insane. Oh, what will you do, Janet, while I am bargaining for so many tons of flesh and such an assortment of black eyes? Oh, God. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right, continue. I'll be preparing myself to go as a missionary to preach liberty to them that are enslaved, your harem inmates amongst the rest. I'll get admitted there, and I'll stir up mutiny, and you, three-tailed Bashaw as you are, stir, shall in a trice find yourself fettered amongst our hands. Nor will I, for one, consent to cut your bonds till you have signed a charter, the most liberal that despot ever yet conferred. I would consent to be at your mercy, Jane. I would have no mercy, Mr. Rochester, if you supplicated for it with an eye like that while you looked so. I should be certain that whatever charter you might grant under coercion, your first act when released would be to violate its conditions. Why, Jane, what would you have? I fear you will compel me to go through a private marriage ceremony. Besides, that performed at the altar, you will stipulate, I see, for peculiar terms. What will they be? I only want an easy mind, sir, not crushed by crowded obligations. Do you remember what you said of Celine Varens, of the diamonds, the cashmeres you gave her? I will not be your English Celine Varens. She'll continue to act as Adele's governess. By that, I shall earn my board and lodging and 30 pounds a year besides. I'll furnish my own wardrobe out of that money, and you shall give me nothing but... Well, but what? Your regard. And if I give you mine in return, that debt will be quit. Well for cool native impudence and pure innate pride you haven't your equal said he we are now approaching thornfield will it please you to dine with me today he asked as we re-entered the gates no thank you sir and what for no thank you if one may inquire i have never dined with you sir and i see no reason why i should now till till what you delight in half phrases till i can't help it do you suppose i eat like an ogre or a ghoul that you may dread being the companion of my repast I have formed no suppositions on the subject, sir, but I want to go on as usual for another month. You'll give up your governessing slavery at once. Indeed, begging your pardon, sir, I shall not. She'll just go on with it as usual. I shall keep out of your way all day, as I have been accustomed to do. You may send for me in the evening when you feel disposed to see me, and I'll come then, but at no other time. I want a smoke, Jane, or a pinch of snuff to comfort me under all this poor me donero continence, as Adele would say. And unfortunately, I have neither my cigar case nor my snuff box, but 
But listen, whisper, it is your time now, little tyrant, but it will be mine presently. When once I have fairly seized you to have and to hold, I'll just figuratively speaking attach you to a chain like this, touching his watch guard. Yes, Bonnie wee thing, I'll wear you in my bosom, lest my jewel I should tine. He said this as he helped me to alight from the carriage, and while he afterwards lifted out Adele, I entered the house and made good my retreat upstairs. He duly summoned me to his presence in the evening. I had prepared an occupation for him, for I was determined not to spend the whole time in a tete-a-tete conversation. I remembered his fine voice. I knew he liked to sing. Good singers generally do. I was no vocalist myself, and in his fastidious judgment, no musician either. But I delighted in listening when the performance was good. No sooner had twilight, that hour of romance, began to lower her blue and starry banner over the lattice. Then I rose, opened the piano, and entreated him, for the love of heaven, to give me a song. He said I was a capricious witch, and that he would rather sing another time. But I averred that no time was like the present. Did I like his voice, he asked. Very much. I was not fond of pampering that susceptible vanity of his, but for once, and from motives of expediency, I would even soothe and stimulate it. Then, Jane, you must play the accompaniment. Very well, sir. I will try. I did try, but was presently swept off the stool and (laughs) denominated a little bungler, being pushed unceremoniously to one side, which was precisely what I wished. He usurped my place and proceeded to accompany himself, for he could play as well as sing. I hide me to the window recess, and while I sat there and looked out on the still trees and dim lawn, to a sweet air was sung in mellow tones the following strain. The truest love that ever heart felt as its kindled core did through each vein in quickened start the tide of being poor. Her coming was my hope each day, her parting was my pain, the chance that did her steps delay was ice in every vein. I dreamed it would be nameless bliss, as I loved love to be, and to this object did I press as blind as eagerly. But wide as pathless was the space that lay our lives between, and dangerous as the foamy race of ocean surges green, and haunted as a robber path through a wilderness or wood, for might and right and woe and wrath between our spirits stood. I dangers dared, I hindrance scorned, I omens did defy. Whatever menaced, harassed, warned, I passed impetuous by. Unsped my rainbow, fast as light, I flew as in a dream, for glorious rose upon my sight, that child of shower and gleam. Still bright on clouds of suffering dim shines that soft, solemn joy. Nor care I now how dense and grim disasters gather nigh. I care not in this moment sweet, though all I have rushed o'er, should come on pinion, strong and fleet, proclaiming vengeance sore. Though haughty hate should strike me down, right bare approach to me, and grinding might with furious frown, swear endless enmity. My love was placed, her little hand, with noble faith in mine, and vowed that wedlock's sacred band our nature shall entwine. My love has sworn with sealing kiss, with me to live to die. I have at last my nameless bliss, as I love, love. Am I? He rose and came towards me, and I saw his face was all kindled, and his full falcon eye flashing, and tenderness and passion in every liniment. I quailed momentarily, then I rallied, soft scene, daring demonstration I would not have. And I stood in peril of both. A weapon of defense must be prepared. I wetted my tongue as he reached me. I asked with asperity, Whom is he going to marry now? That was a strange question to put by his darling Jane. Indeed, I considered it a very natural and necessary one. He had talked of his future wife dying with him. What did he mean by such a pagan idea? With no intention of dying with him, he might depend on that. Oh, all he longed, all he prayed for, was that I might live with him 
death was not for such as I. Indeed it was. I had as good a right to die when my time came as he had, but I should bide that time, not be hurried away in sooty. But I forgive him for the selfish idea and prove my pardon by a, recon by a reconciling kiss. No. I would rather be excused. Here I heard myself apostrophized as a hard little thing. It was added, any other woman would have been melted to marrow at hearing such stanzas crooned in her praise. I assured him I was naturally hard, very flinty, and that he would often find me so, and that moreover I was determined to show him diverse rugged points in my character where the ensuing four weeks elapsed. He should know fully what sort of bargain he had made while there was yet time to rescind it. Would I be quiet and talk rationally? I would be quiet if he liked, and as to talking rationally, I flattered myself I was doing that now. He fretted, pished, poshed. Very good, I thought. You may fume and fidget as you please, but this is best plan to pursue with you, I am certain. I like you more than I can say, but I'll not sink into a bathos of sentiment, and with this needle of repartee, I'll keep you from the edge of the gulf too, and moreover, maintain by its pungent aid the distance between you and myself most conducive to our real mutual advantage. From less to more, I worked him up to a considerable irritation. Then, after he had retired in dungeon, quite to the other end of the room, I got up and sang, I wish you good night, sir, in my natural and wonted respectful manner. I slipped out by the side door and got away. The system thus entered on, I pursued during the whole season of probation, and with the best success, he was kept to be sure rather cross and crusty, but on the whole I could see he was excellently entertained, and that a lamb-like submission and turtle-dove sensibility while fostering his despotism more would have pleased his judgment, satisfied his common sense, and even suited his taste less. In other people's presence, I was, as formerly, deferentially and quiet. I knew the line of conduct being uncalled for. It was only in the evening conferences I thus thwarted and afflicted him. He continued to send for me punctually the moment the clock struck seven, though when I appeared before him now, he had such honeyed terms as love and darling on his lips. The best words at my service were provoking puppet, malicious elf, sprite, changeling, etc. For caresses, too, I now got grimaces. For a pressure of the hand, a pinch on the arm. For a kiss on the cheek, a severe thwack of the ear. It was all right. At presents, I decidedly preferred these fierce favors to anything more tender. Mrs. Fairfax, I saw, approved me. Her anxiety on my account vanished. Therefore, I was certain I did well. Meantime, Mr. Rochester affirmed I was wearing him to skin and bone and threatened awful vengeance for my present conduct at some period fast coming. I laughed in my sleeve at his menaces. I can keep you in reasonable check now, I reflected. I don't doubt to be able to do it hereafter. When an expedient loses its virtue, another must be devised. Yet, after all, my task was not an easy one. Often I would rather have pleased than teased him. My future husband was becoming to me my whole world, and more than the world, almost my hope of heaven. He stood between me and every thought of religion, as an eclipse intervenes between man and the broad sun. I could not, in those days, see God for his creature, of whom I'd made an idol. There's this like prevailing theme throughout this chapter. I don't know how conscious it is, but that for men, like 
anything resembling like being dominated or being submissive is play. You know, these tweaks of the ear, these pinches, right? He's taking out his emotional frustration on her as a physical act. And you can certainly hurt someone psychologically. Death is like a physical transition. I'm always a little bit disturbed. Like in this chapter, he is always like saying like, you are my master and I just want to make you happy. And then the minute she tries to assert herself, he resists instantaneously. And then when he does give in to her, it's placating, right? Like allowing Adele to accompany them. Buying these silks, like getting the black and the gray, like he's still buying her silks, you know? Yeah, I think what's interesting, this chapter really reminds me of the conversation that we had with Rose Lerner about how Rochester really wants to forget class. He likes Jane's demonstrative and independent spirit. When she tells him, like, well, you can make all of the waistcoats out of the black silk and I'm going to wear what I have. And, like, he likes that. He likes to be challenged. But, like, because he's so deep in his own privilege, he can't see how overbearing and heavy and confining the thing that he is trying to make Jane do is. Yes, I also think like the reason he likes whenever she pushes back isn't because he likes being challenged. I think he thinks it's funny. Like he's charmed by it. Yeah, he's charmed by it. He doesn't really take it seriously. Like he's not in awe of it. He's not impressed by it. He makes little jokes about it. Like her demonstrations of power are not something he takes seriously, nor can he. Like anything subverting the actual power dynamic. And I think one of the reasons he wants to be with her outside of a class framework Like, one of the reasons is that he wants to believe that she is voluntarily submissive to him. Absolutely. Jane's practicing independence and challenging, and he's being indulgent. But I think what's actually really interesting about this chapter and the sort of, like, get girl that she gets from Miss Fairfax and, like, the fact that she feels like she's doing the right thing by having that outside validation is, like, this is practice for what's about to happen. And he doesn't see it that way. He sees it as a game, and this isn't a game. Like, it's not a game for Jane. Can you be more specific about what's about to happen? Can I? I mean, it's like, in, it's going to be in the next two chapters. Well, I think take into context, because you said Mrs. Fairfax wants her to prepare for what's going to happen. I think in context, what Mrs. Fairfax knows, supposedly. I like, I still have a question about what Mrs. Fairfax knows. Like, nothing about this is like clear to me. So I thought you were making a reference to marriage itself. No, I was making, so the get em girl of Mrs. Fairfax in that scene where like she's seeing Jane keep Rochester at a distance and that Jane takes that to mean that she's doing the right thing and gets the validation. Mrs. Fairfax was telling her like, don't sleep with him before you get married. Like don't have a physical relationship with him even though you live here. Like keep your distance. Don't trust yourself or him. And Jane's really doing that. And like I was saying, this is practice for what's going to come like because it's going to be revealed that she can't marry Rochester and he's going to be like you should marry me anyway but Mrs. Fairfax doesn't know that no but she knows that something's not right and so I continually have this question about what Mrs. Fairfax knows in truth I think it's enough that Miss Fairfax knows that she's a governess yeah and that it's unlikely that he'll go through with marrying her and so I think what I'm trying to get at is like 
Mrs. Fairfax continues to believe that this is unreal. This is not true. This is not going to be seen to its inevitable conclusion. So whenever you said Mrs. Fairfax saying, like, you go, girl, like, keep doing that, I think it was Mrs. Fairfax wanting Jane to hold out. Like, she should not lose her virginity to him. She should not have sex with him because she might not end up marrying him. And I don't think it's because Mrs. Fairfax has any additional context beyond the fact that, like, she's just a governess. There's this chasm of class between them. There's this age difference between them. There are all sorts of reasons before we get to the big bad of why this marriage is unlikely. Not only unlikely, but like potentially hazardous, like without the big bad, as you say. And I think like everything that both Adele and Mrs. Fairfax laid out in this particular chapter is really clear. And that, you know, Mrs. Fairfax is right to point out that she can't really trust herself in this moment. I don't like the sexual politics of the fact that like she has to control the sexuality and desire of both of them. I don't like that, like that's happening, but it makes sense to me. Like I understand where like that cultural maxim comes from and Yeah, and I think in this historical specific context, like, Jane has everything to lose. Yeah, Jane has everything to lose. And he has nothing to gain. Whereas I think, like, in our modern sensibilities, right, like, it's a little bit more egalitarian, you know? It should be, right? So there's less reason for it. But, like, I think Rochester's mind, like, with that story about the moon, like, he's clearly living in a fairy tale. And I think he clearly believes that he can bend his reality to suit his needs. And, you know, he's been building up this idea that it's good and right, you know, without this like looming shadow is still strange and wrong and not possible. We'll get to it when we get to it, but I don't know if there's, I believe there is a version of this novel that is remarkably similar that does not have this big bad. And I think Jane has to be the realistic one because she is the one who has none of the privilege of even having that kind of imagination. And I think what Mrs. Fairfax is reminding her and what Adele is also reminding her of, you know, she says it's French skepticism, but perhaps it's the skepticism of a little girl who has grown up in the context she's grown up in, is fairy tales aren't real, right? Everything he's doing is a symptom of a larger structure around them that is actually resistant towards marriage between them. I think at the end when she's like, you know, thinking about like what I'm giving into, right? She is giving into the fantasy of marrying him. So she can't give into the fantasy of living without consequence. And I think we can't understand Miss Fairfax as not understanding, like the stakes are already so big. I think we can read Mrs. Fairfax's reaction as still being naive to the sort of even higher stakes of what Rochester is doing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think we can read her, and it would be true read, to say that, like, Miss Fairfax doesn't know anything, and she is concerned for this working girl in the house for all the reasons that she said, which were, you know, well elucidated. I also genuinely think that Miss Fairfax thinks that something's going on. I don't know what she knows, but I think she knows more than she's telling. And I think that gives her pause for Jane. I mean, I would think that it's enough, like the given context, like at face value, this is enough to give Mrs. Fairfax pause and say the things that she said. And Mrs. Fairfax didn't say anything like, she didn't accuse Jane of not really knowing Rochester. You know, she didn't say anything along the lines of like, he's secretive. She said, he's of a different class. He's significantly older than you. And men of means are not accustomed to marrying their governesses. And she also like went out of her way to be like, I have been concerned about his preference for you. I have been concerned about him taking you on as a pet. 
like the things that she notices but that's what i mean where it's like he's constantly calling her the simple dame but like miss fairfax knows more than she lets on and like again it doesn't have to be that she knows anything else i agree but i'm also like she's observant she's the housekeeper she knows that there's stuff going on she knows that there's stuff going on on the third floor Well, it's a kind of a classic story. I mean, it remains that way to this day of like a female domestic worker in a household ending up in a extramarital sexual situation with the patriarch, right? That's been going on forever. And I think that's what Mrs. Fairfax is weary of. Yeah, and concerned. I've kind of waffled on it, but I'm starting to feel like I don't know if Mrs. Fairfax is pretending at anything. I think she just needs to be like as observant as her character has been so far to realize the terrible situation, the precarity of what Jane is embarking on with Rochester and to be fearful of it and to have been fearful of it for a long time. Because even if this went like the most like pat way and they just fucked, like Jane loses everything, right? Like her life is torn asunder, right? Just by that. And indeed the household itself would be badly affected. Yeah, and even if everything in terms of what Jane and Rochester are saying is like fully realized and like they get married, Jane is still in a worse situation. She's legally dead and like wouldn't be able to leave and is thrust into a world that she doesn't know very well. Like all of Mrs. Fairfax's fears that she voices are totally justified. Also, he's a much older man when she's like, he could be your dad. And like, Jane's like, no, he couldn't. It's like, no, he absolutely could. So that's why I thought your explication on Fairfax's feelings would be spoiler free. Because I, I think like, I'm starting to feel like, oh, no, I meant like the practice that like she's practicing by keeping Rochester at a distance. Mrs. Fairfax is like, good job. Like he sees that as play. We only understand that in the future as actual practice for what Jane will do. Right. But I said, what is the actual practice? What will Jane do? That's the spoiler. Yeah. Right. I don't think it's a spoiler. (laughs) Yeah, she's going to leave. She's going to make a decision that Rochester hates. Well, no, I think even if this is seen through as a marriage, like it's going to suck. Even if he does not marry her for all of the obvious reasons he would not marry her, it's going to suck. She doesn't even need to leave the house and it's going to suck. Like what's forgotten about, Rochester is totally oblivious to, what Fairfax is totally aware of, and what Jane is ignoring on purpose is that any outcome for this engagement is bad for Jane. Like, this situation that they're currently in is devoid of a happily ever after. If they get married, if he calls it off, if she calls it off, and I think what Fairfax is doing is you know, make hay while the sun shines. Don't give everything away. Keep it in your petticoats. (laughs) Don't have sex, but also don't give anything away. Yeah, don't give yourself away to this. Yeah. Interesting chapter. Any other thoughts? I'm done. I'm spent. All right. Well, with that, loosen your jeans. But never your airs.